Listeners, this episode, we're going to give you another side of a voice, of a person you probably think you already know very well. What would the first joke in the Audie Cornish comedy special be? You've thought about oh, this before. Oh, no. It's, it's usually something like, uh, hey, you don't look like what I thought either. <laughs> Works every time. Yes, that is the Audie Cornish, one of the hosts of NPR's All Things Considered. She is my guest today, and she is talking comedy. What would the name of the Audie Cornish comedy special be? Oh, um, Not Safe for Work with Audie Cornish. <laughs> yes. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. For the last few months, Audie has been interviewing some really amazing and funny women for a very special NPR series called She's Funny. For this series, Audie interviewed Margaret Cho, Nicole Byer, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Aparna Nancherla, Hannah Gadsby, and Jenny Slate. I wanted to talk with Audie about the whole experience and also share a bit of one of those conversations. So you'll hear two things in this episode. First... She'll break down what all these funny women told her and what she learned from those talks. And then we're going to give you a nice, long cut of one of those chats. You'll hear later on in this episode, Audie in conversation with Jenny Slate, the comic, the movie star, the former SNL cast member. All right, let's get to the laughs. Hey, Audie. Sam Sanders, thanks for having me. How's it going? Good. Good. I um, am excited to have you on to talk about this pretty cool series you just did on women and comedy. You talked with some amazing guests. Tell our folks what that series was and what you did. Well, actually, when we started out, I thought, um, who can we talk to who can hold the stage, right? Because a lot of these are based on live stage interviews that we did. And I also had in the back of my mind the Turning the Table series from NPR, which was a series about women um, in rock and pop and music. And I thought, wouldn't it be great just to have a series of comedians on? They can all be women. We won't really tell the audience that it's going to be ah, all women. I love that. <laughs> and the point is that why shouldn't they be spoken to about craft and ideas and what's going on in the culture in the same way men are. Mm -hmm. And of course, their femininity and how they operated within this mostly male kind of comedy culture came out. So it ended up being like a, a central theme of the conversations, how they were rule breakers, mm -hmm. how they pick themselves up when they fall, mm -hmm. and how they think about trying to make an audience laugh without making themselves the butt of the joke, if that makes sense. That's hard to do. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so, Adi, I really want to give our listeners a feel for this series of amazing conversations. After the break, we're going to share a kind of longish version of your chat with Jenny Slate. But before that, I want to give a little, you know, snippets of some of the other chats. The first person we spoke with was Hannah Gatsby, who made a huge splash with her um, performance called Nanette. Yeah. And the reason why it was a big deal is because people weren't sure, like, was this funny? Was well, this yeah. monologue? Was this stand-up? Well, because there's this moment kind of like towards the end where this funny comedy set in the spirit of funny comedy specials, she gets really dark and really serious, and it becomes a totally different mood than your typical comedy show. Right, and I have her dissect that moment here. Okay. 
when I was in Tasmania at a bus stop and um, I got mixed up in a man's rage. I tell the story in the show at first like it's a joke and then I strip it back. So I do what's known as a callback. He was a bit of an idiot, drunk idiot, who thought I was a gay man trying to hit on his girlfriend. And he goes, keep away from my girlfriend, you freak. And and she's just stepped in going, whoa, stop it, it's a girl. Which still amuses me. It's like, dude, that's not how it works. <laughs> that is not what... So this is you reeling me in. Yeah. So, so this is... now I'm like, oh, I'm comfortable. Yeah. I'm, I'm... It's a funny trope. And it's also yeah. laughing at the country bumpkins. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the homophobe. And then later on in the show, I go, he beat me up. He beat the out of me and nobody stopped him. And... I was still sort of stuck in that trauma and I realised it was because I'd been stopping short whenever I'd tell this story to the world. And the world's going, this is an acceptable narrative, a stranger who's dumb, who's from the country, who's homophobic. Right. And also, she's fine. Yeah. Right? Like, that's that's what allows us to laugh. Hey, she's fine. (laughs) We all too easily laugh at country bumpkins. But that's where I'm from. There are people like me living there, trying to grow up in those places. The stakes are much higher than people realise. Really are they? Yeah. Because you mock people, they take it out on vulnerable people. So you taking on these issues caused a lot of, uh, let's say, consternation <laughs> in the comedy world. Yeah. A lot of discussion about whether you're even a comedian. I mean, what's incredible about all that for me is that that's what they took out of the show. Like, It seemed like people were saying, look, there are rules. <laughs> this is what comedy is. This is what comedy is not. Are there rules, and has a lot of your comedy been about just breaking them? Well, if they no longer make sense, I don't mind breaking them. And I'm a student of art history as well. I've seen this pattern. People break rules. They get accused of not being actual artists. And I was like, this is, this is old news. Mm-hmm. I remember, Adi, watching that special she's talking about when it kind of takes a turn towards the dark. And I recalled saying to myself on my couch in front of my TV, this shouldn't be happening. This is this is weird. I don't know how I feel about this. This feels uncomfortable. Did it feel the same way for you watching that special? And did talking with her about this change how you felt about it? Um, you know, I did actually see the show. And so I kind of felt that in the audience. Mm-hmm. I felt that shift as people tried to understand like wait can I laugh at this (laughs) should I be laughing at this and I mean two things are going on there not to get meta but as an interviewer I wanted her to dissect a joke Mm -hmm. you know I think it's very easy to ask someone like that a question like what's it like to be an LBGTQ blah 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 Mm -hmm. right instead of just saying how do you write a joke Mm -hmm. about an extremely painful experience that you know the audience is not going to understand how to react to? And you can hear she really is a very, um, she's someone who intellectualizes things. So she has broken down every sentence of that and, and how we're going to feel. And I really wanted to showcase that intellect in the interview. And the other thing is when she talks about the cycle of rule breaking, you know, Mm. that first they say this isn't what it's supposed to be. And then they say you're not even an artist. And Mm -hmm. then and then maybe you get that critical acclaim. And I think so many of these women have that in common where they start doing a certain kind of work and then everyone's like, you're not doing it right. In fact, you're not doing it right so much. I don't even think you really know what you're doing. Maybe you're not cut out for this. Mm. And then they pick themselves up and choose a new direction. Mm. 
creating your own art that is um, born of you and your identity isn't always about doing it in opposition to the way white men have done it. Mm. Um, and, and that can be a very difficult thing artistically or creatively to find your way to. Mm-hmm. That it's not about saying, well, they would do it this way, so I'm going to do it this way. Mm-hmm. It's looking inside of yourself and saying, how would I do this? If I were totally free to do what I wanted to do, how would I do it? <laughs> if I was totally free to be an individual and be treated as such, what do I think is funny? Mm. And I think that is an intriguing part of hearing them each kind of articulate how they reach that moment. Yeah. Is there another moment that kind of gets to that idea of I'm just going to do it how I want to do it? Forget the systems and the patriarchy. I think if we could talk about Julia Louis-Dreyfus for a moment. Let's do it. Because she's a good example of someone who really, right, she's been in the system. You can't get bigger than Seinfeld. And then you can't get bigger than V. Exactly. She's actually always been good. Mm-hmm. And she joined SNL when she was just a teenager. I didn't know that. we talked to her. Yeah, wow. yeah. It's a really lovely moment. Um, I want to play that for you. But going into it, just think about this. Everyone who goes on SNL, mm-hmm. they're really only trying to make one guy laugh. Lauren. <laughs> one Canadian guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Who was like, very hard to read. <laughs> like, who is very hard to read. So you have to, this is the context. Uh, and here's what she had to say when we kind of brought her back to those early days. There was a culture in which the writers, who are mainly male, would only write the really meaty, funny stuff for other male actors. And again, there are exceptions to this, of course, because there were moments in which we all got moments to shine, but they were not as frequent as the men. It was like banging your head against a wall to be sort of get anybody to pay attention to write material for you. And I came away from that show thinking to myself, okay, look, if this is what it's going to be, then I don't think I'm going to do it. So it's always been important to me to have a very happy, supportive set, to hire people who are fundamentally kind and generous. And from that comes just so much fun. It's interesting hearing that clip, Adi, because I feel like it speaks to a thing that women or minorities constantly have to deal with. Like, it's not enough just to be allowed into the room to get a seat at the table. If the table, if the room is inherently hostile to who you are as a person based on how it's set up, what good does it do you? Right. And obviously, SNL, we've seen women on that show really flourish in the last um, decade or two. I can imagine maybe um, black and brown comedians probably go through the same thing that she's talking about. To your point, it's often also not about hostility. Mm -hmm. It's if you are in a business in which the top benchmark is subjective. Yeah. And one of the contributing factors could be, do we think this person is funny? Can I write something for them? Um, Do I know enough about who they are without writing something that doesn't come off as racist or sexist or caricature? Mm -hmm. You can really be stuck. Yeah. And to hear her saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to go through life creating the environment that works best for me, where I can do my best work, mm-hmm. um, really shows not just ambition, but someone understanding their power yes. and saying, look, yeah. this may have been a rough gig for me, but I do have some power and here's how I want to use it going forward. 
Mm. And that gets to the final person I want to mention, which is Margaret Cho. She's another person who grabbed the brass ring, right? Especially of the 90s, having your own sitcom. Back I remember day, this. This was the peak. It was a big <laughs> yes, deal because exactly. she, was, she, was, she was making history when she was very young. It was like the first network sitcom led by an Asian woman. And she was what, like maybe in her 20s? Exactly. It was a big deal. It's a huge deal. She had this really acidic, sharp, um, West Coast, intense sense of humor. And so she was being slotted into a TV show that was literally all American girl, you know? Yeah. The premise being, even though she's Asian, she's just like you. Like, that's literally the approach of the show. And she is just a completely different creature. So just to give you an example of her more typical humor, uh, here we are talking about one of the jokes that, that she still tells. Sometimes you'll see like a really beautiful Asian woman and she's with the most broke down, busted white man. And I'm just like, are your eyes that small? (laughs) I think as an Asian American woman, and you know, like we're really fetishized by white culture and, and white men in particular. And so there's this thing that you know, we sort of gain power through having relationships with white men. And that kind of thing is like, it's almost it doesn't matter, like our own uh, value pales in comparison to the value of whiteness. So that's really what the joke is trying to say and trying to talk about. The but joke kind of crawls inside of the stereotype. In, inside of the stereotype and inserted. So almost it is like a fortune cookie. Wow. Yeah, don't try to put her in a family sitcom box. She's not cut <laughs> out for ABC nightly television. She's just not. She is not. She's not. But you know what? She grabbed that ring. She found out it was tough. She had a hard time, she said, in the in her own writer's room. Mm. And it's because she couldn't feel her own power. Now, she came to it later in her career, but not without a lot of ups and downs. You know, she struggled um, with addiction and other issues. And the person you see on stage in her today is someone who's really comfortable in their own skin in a lot of ways. I mean, she has found a really beautiful career and it's just really to me fascinating like how people pick themselves up how people find their own path in the public even when it seems like they're not an easy fit because like just to code switch out of all things considered host voice for a moment when she told that joke i was like oh no girl (laughs) (laughs) i can't laugh at that i don't need the twitter hordes coming after me like Mm -hmm. This is not cool at all. I'm not even sure. Like, is this the kind of joke that was funnier in the 90s when I didn't Uh know any better? And Uh now I just feel like Like, it is not the side of the street I want to be on. I mean, I had a lot going through my head. Really? Which is why I put it on air. Because I'm like, let me share the discomfort (laughs) with all of you, America. (laughs) I love it. Speaking of things going through your head. So you end up talking with all these amazing women making comedy. Did anything change for you after these conversations in terms of how you see women in the workplace, in comedy, in the world, in terms of how you see yourself as a woman and a working woman? In comedy, I feel like there are so many avenues to break into it now mm-hmm. that that is really great. Yeah. And there's so many ways for people to find an audience and be funny. That doesn't make it easier. I mean, you will still right now, you can Google a bunch of articles about like how it's hard to do X, Y, and yeah. Z. But I think there's an awareness now that like something that is funny doesn't have to be funny to everyone in the entire world for it not to be of value and good. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, you, you can, there can still be room for different voices. Yeah. And, and I think lastly, I've been really encouraged by how in the end, 
these women just embrace their own personalities as women. Like, that, that there's no more kind of apologizing. Nobody's funny for a girl anymore. Mm. And I think that's really great. I love it. Adi, thank you for this series, for talking with me about all this stuff, for being a funny woman in the world yourself. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sam. It's so great to share these with you. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. I love this stuff. Thank you. All right, time for a break. When we come back, you will hear Audie Cornish live in conversation with another funny woman, comedian Jenny Slate. That is after the break. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor, StoryPoint Wines, maker of StoryPoint, a new wine brand who believes that wine and storytelling are the perfect pair. Much like a good podcast, StoryPoint builds layers of interest into their wine to create a bold, velvety taste profile in every bottle. Discover why StoryPoint received Wine Enthusiast's Best Buy Award. Visit storypointwines.com minute to purchase. As a special offer to NPR listeners, shipping is included in your online order. The coronavirus pandemic is changing everything really fast. So we have created a podcast where you can hear conversations and stories from NPR journalists who are covering the pandemic, the public health fight against it, and how the world is coping. I'm your host, Kelly McEvers. Listen and subscribe to Coronavirus Daily from NPR. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. This episode, we are focusing on the funny. We're featuring my colleague, Audie Cornish. She's talking about a series of conversations she's had with funny women, comedians who are rule breakers and have paved their own paths in a very dude-centric comedy world. I want to share now a bit of a conversation that Audie had last year with the comedian Jenny Slate. They both spoke before a live audience in Washington, D.C., you may know Jenny Slate from the movies, from her time on SNL, from her comedy specials. But I first got to know her when she did the voice of Marcel the Shell with Marcel. shoes on. Oh, no, it was this really cool YouTube skit that I've just made that. me love her. My name is Marcel, and I'm partially a shell, as you can see on my body. But I also have shoes and um, a face. So Marcel was this stop-motion animated talking shell. It was so weird and quirky and poignant, just like Jenny Slate and her comedy. I'm excited to share this chat with you all. Adi talked with Jenny Slate right around the time Jenny released her memoir, Little Weirds, and her Netflix special, Stage Fright. Adi says that Jenny is like lemonade. There is sweetness, but, quote, acid as well. All right, here's their chat. I think you'll enjoy it. I often find when I've told people I was doing this show, they go, oh, yeah, I know her. And then there's this, like, pause where they can't explain maybe the funny thing or how they mm -hmm. know you're funny or whatever it is. So I wanted to talk about your origins as a writer. Okay. Because your dad is a poet. Yes. And I hear you have a, a degree in literature from Columbia. I do. <laughs> so... You didn't just sort of sit down and, you know, dabble in the writing of books. How did you come to it? That's true. I read a lot of books um, before I decided to write one. Interesting. <laughs> Not um, many people do. Yeah. <laughs> so I knew what they were. Um, <laughs> I didn't just, like, find paper and try to draw and then write words and be like, I made a new thing. Um, I, I 
Yeah, I knew what books were. Yeah, at which to, to get to that point, I don't often do this. Just say, like, on the back of the book it says X because as an interviewer it makes it look like you haven't read the book. Mm-hmm. However, this is a very good back of the book. Yeah. It describes the book as uh, of the many things you'll learn uh, about the ghost of a sea captain, a French kissing rabbit, birth, death, and a vagina singing sad old songs. Yeah. I put both a question mark and an exclamation point there. I don't know how I expected to convey that on stage. <laughs> but it, it's an interesting kind of comedy. And like, how did you come to the funny in your writing? I mean, if we can go back a little bit um, to you as a kid, where, where was the funny? Where was the writing? How did they intersect? I think that I am a very animal human. And so I feel happier when people smile at me. I think it's like very easy. It's an easy um, reaction. And I think from a very young age, I knew that I felt happier when people were smiling and powerful that I could have caused that. And that if they smiled, it meant that I could also make myself be happy. Obviously, that's like a dangerous thing to be. I was going to say, what are yeah, the pros and cons to get into? Of putting your your happiness in the hands of other people in that way, right? Because now you're waiting for them to respond to you. Well, looks like you zoned in on my lifetime struggle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just Four in the in story. You were like, you I am here bottom. for your consumption. And I was like, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's not that hard to figure out what makes me tick or what pleases me or hurts me, I guess. But um, you know what? I, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. I, I was never like a class clown, I don't think. Um, I am, it, it doesn't seem like this would be true, but I, I think I'm chatty as a way to get over shyness. Um, and I do, I do feel shy, and I think I was, like, obedient in school. I was never trying to, like, get attention. But it was about joy. It really was always about joy. Like, making my grandfather laugh as a little uh, kid just yielded so many wonderful results for me. What kind of jokes made him laugh? I used to call their their landline. I mean, we only had normal phones then. Um, And I used to do a voice and say like, hello, this is like Bagel Hanukkah calling from Kabai Jewish (laughs) Philanthropies. You left your dreidel in the parking lot. (laughs) And like, he just loved it and he laughed so hard and it was like, I would always come from like a Jewish organization called, you know, and like... And he just loved it, and um, and it just felt legit to me because I used to, you know, I watched him watch TV and laugh, and like very early on, knew how to tell the difference between a fake laugh and a real laugh, and um, when you can get that realness from an adult, uh, for me, it just made me feel like, oh, I'm real too, and yeah. I am like, I'm just as substantial as. Nana and Papa. (laughs) You've talked about uh, Gilda Radner as one of your comedy heroes. Um, Can you talk about why? Like what what aspect of her work? Um, Because she would be, you know, you would be quite young when she, right? Like was... Yeah. I don't think I, I wasn't 
born when she was on yeah. SNL because I was born in 82. So you'd be encountering her work kind of later. Well, my dad got these VHS tapes um, that were like, you know, a history of SNL. And he like explicitly was like, you're like this. This is you, <laughs> like, you should see this because you're not like, because um, I also got, as much as I did not, I was not a class clown, like couldn't pay attention in school. Uh, and uh, a lot of my comments that would come back were like, she just does not care to listen. You know, she just doesn't care to listen. And um, I think that I felt for a while like I wasn't smart because I couldn't listen traditionally and, and people were mad at me for it. And my dad brought in these tapes of Gilda Radner and was sort of like, no, 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 you're just, you're like this, which is, a, first of all, a great honor um, for... Did it feel that way? I mean, when that tape first went in, were you yeah. like, was that recognition or, oh my God, dad, why did you say this? No, it was, it was a huge honor. And then it was just like, how can I get there? Not how can I get that energy level or the urge to perform. Um, the, there's a sketch that Gilda does where it, I think it's called the Judy Miller show. Judy Miller show. She's like a, she's a little a girl scout. She's a brownie. And, uh, and she's, like, jumping up and down on her bed in her room and just, like, playing. That's what the whole sketch is, and she freaks out. This woman alone, they gave her the whole stage, she just freaks out for, like, seven minutes. And she's exhausted, and she's out of breath, and it's, like, it's, like, a silly, silly, sloppy ballet. And I remember seeing that, thinking, like, oh, I... I don't want to be a ballerina. I want to be a funny thing like this. And I just, I just always kept myself angled in that direction, at least even in my mind. Time for one more break. When we come back, Jenny Slate talks about what actually happened at SNL that led to her firing. I just think it was like culturally like so regressive. I think that's what happens when you, you have a creative vehicle that is helmed by someone for 40 years. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Did you know that Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically with no limit to how much you can earn or how much they'll match? Plus, Discover is accepted at over 95% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when you use your Discover card, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2019 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Hey parents, Mindy here from Wow in the World, NPR's podcast for all ages. With schools out, we are all looking for fun ways to educate and entertain our kids. Wow in the World has over 100 science-filled, screen-free episodes to help them laugh and learn. It's like a cartoon for their brains. Wow in the World from Tinkercast and NPR. So fast forward and you actually get to spend some time on SNL. Um, Sometimes. Sometime. <laughs> But before we get to that, I want to mention that, you know, we actually spoke recently with Julia Louis-Dreyfus about her career. And obviously she's a star of Veep and, you know, Seinfeld and a billion times uh, Emmy winner. And I was talking to her about kind of the challenges and pitfalls of essentially starting her career there, which she did uh, in her early 20s. And she talked about how she struggled what was the atmosphere you experienced when you entered the show? And I guess this was 2009. Well, um, there was certainly room for women to shine. 
because, you know, when I got there, Christian Wig was there, and, and she was really the star of the show and, and deserved to be in that position. And um, the writing was really, it was really just like geared towards who was the most uh, popular. And, and that to me felt normal um, or fair or whatever. And um, what I didn't understand was a voiceless risk aversion um, that I found to be really lame and um, unfun. And I didn't like that there, there was a culture of fear and intimidation. Whether or not you're going to be like directly sexist and just give all of the parts to the men or whatever, which seems more like, like Julia's experience, but or whether there's going to be what I actually think is a much more like confusing culture of misogyny that encourages... Um, encourages fear and shame. You know, that's what was going on there. That's a culture that is encouraged by the people that run the show. And, I mean, I don't know. Misogyny is a tricky thing because it can be um, straightforward and on purpose and also unconscious. I mean, like, I, I consider myself to be a, a feminist person and because I grew up in this culture, I'm still rooting out the misogyny that it's internalized. Um, but that's a strong word. I mean, what, what, how, I don't need you to get, you know, very detailed, but how does that manifest itself just like in a room full of comics? Feeling dressed down, feeling shamed, feeling like you shouldn't have tried. Um, those are all um, pressures that are like encouraged in a misogynist environment. Um, where there's not an openness, there's not a sense that power can present in a way that represents like plurality. That there's a, there are many, many different ways to access power and different people can hold it. Yeah, I think it was not a feminist environment. And it doesn't mean that the, some people there weren't feminists, but I think it was just like a ghost ship. <laughs> I just think it was like culturally like so regressive. I think that's what happens when you, you have a creative vehicle that is helmed by someone for 40 years. Um, you have talked in the past about not being renewed, about losing that gig. I'm actually interested in what happened after uh, because you talk about it giving you a kind of stage fright, which is the title of the comedy special. But what, what did that mean? I mean, if you're the little girl who whose dad brought home VHS tapes of this program, and then you have this very short-lived stint, and it is very talked about, right? This kind of public conversation around it. What was the first instinct? What did you do? Ooh, I, I mean, first I just felt really, really embarrassed <laughs> and terrible. Um, but it also feels a lot like what it must feel like to get... I mean, hardly anyone gets kicked out of a cult because I guess they want you to stay. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're never like, you're bad, leave. They're like, you're bad, get in the bad closet. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> um, <laughs> you have to make the salad dressing for everybody for three weeks. <laughs> um, but suddenly, I, was, I, I just couldn't imagine anything worse than getting fired. And then once I was, it was like, oh, that 
I mean, it's so annoying to be to have your failures spoken about in the press, but people forget. And um, I also noticed that I was the person carrying that around, and I would like go into meetings for a new job and be like, "So I got fired," and everyone would be like, Ugh, "You know, we don't know that, or we don't care, or, you know, <laughs> we're not like we're not charting you the way that you are." doing in in your own internal crazy space and um yeah and then like lots of fear like what's going to happen if I try again and um do people hate me as much as I hate myself for failing and mixing my projections with other people's um gaze on me and just like feeling all of that disorientation what had also happened at the time and what always happens is that like I mean, until I eventually croak, I will not die. Like, I truly will not not lie down. And um, I knew I was going to get fired. I had, in that time waiting to get fired, had created Marcel the Shell. Um, and you can be kicked out of a place. I definitely believe that. But I also believe that the opportunity to find self-love and creative fulfillment is not like a hallway with one door guarded by a super old man, but like actually, you know, like it's spherical. It's spherical and, and you just have to like hold it between your legs. <laughs> just look down, like find your opportunity. <laughs> Thanks again to my colleague Audie Cornish and comedian Jenny Slate for that wonderful conversation. You can catch Jenny Slate's Netflix special. It's called Stage Fright. It's on Netflix right now. This episode was produced by Anjali Sastry and edited by Kitty Isley. We had special help for this one from Bilal Qureshi, Lauren Hodges, and Joanna Palowska. Those three produced Audie's She's Funny live series. You can catch more of Audie's She's Funny conversations at NPR.org. All right, listeners, that's a wrap. Stay safe and sane out there. Till Friday. Talk soon. Hold up. 